Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, would you pray with me? Lord, we are uh, so grateful for the gift of your word that brings life. Lord, it is a, a treasure uh, that you have entrusted to our care, and I pray that as we open your word here and we read from Deuteronomy your word to us, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear you clearly as you speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, earlier this year, I watched uh, a fascinating movie with some friends of mine called A Hidden Life. Uh, maybe some of you have seen it. It's uh, the story of an Austrian farmer living during World War II whose humble faith keeps him from pledging allegiance to Hitler uh, and fighting for the Nazis. As a result of this small act of resistance, he's eventually uh, imprisoned and then uh, put to death. Now, before you add this to your Netflix queue, I should warn you, this is a very unusual movie. It's very long. There's almost no dialogue at all and very little plot. But the unusual filmmaking style is intentional because the director is trying to capture the very ordinary nature of this man's life. And when we think of World War II, there are so many exceptional and outstanding stories of, of heroism and bravery and daring escapes and everything else. But, but what of the hundreds of men and women who quietly stood up against the Nazis with no fanfare, no story, no dramatic plot twists, no beautiful requiem? What are the ordinary people who sought to live out their faith, even if nobody saw or recognized it? In other words, people who, like the title of the movie says, lived a hidden life, hidden away from the public eye, where few people would ever see or know. And this is, actually, I believe, the, exactly the kind of faith that Moses calls the people to embrace in the book of Deuteronomy. Simple quiet, straightforward, just ordinary people going about their daily business, living ordinary lives to the glory of God. No hoopla, no hype, no crazy special effects, just regular people called to serve God in the moment-by-moment -moment reality of their lives. In a culture that's obsessed with celebrity and fame and status. I personally find this incredibly encouraging. It's freeing for me to know that Christ isn't calling me to be famous, but to be faithful. Christ teaches me to be content with an ordinary life, and then he shows me how to do it. And so as we wrap up Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is going to encourage the people, look, you don't need an advanced degree or special training to love and serve the Lord. You have everything that you need in the law. It's knowable, it's understandable, it's doable. So go do it and experience God's blessing as a result. In other words, the message uh, from our passage today is simply this. The commands that bring life are simple, so go do them. The commands that bring life, they're simple, so go do them. Our first point this morning is this. Uh, know God's law. 
Look with me at the text. Moses is eager to remind the people that God's law is knowable. So starting in verse 11 in chapter 20, uh, 30. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, none of the Israelites could claim ignorance of the law as a reason for their failure to keep it. Remember from the previous chapter, everyone is gathered together in the same place on the banks, uh, 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 on the plains of Moab, on the banks of the river uh, uh, Jordan, listening to Moses. The men, women, uh, children, servants, even foreigners, even the very lowliest of people, young and old alike. And Moses has gone to great lengths to command, to preach, even to write down the law of God so that everyone might have equal access to it. Their sort of extensive libraries consisted of basically one book, right? They had God's law. That was it. It was all they had, and it was all that they needed. Now, you may be feeling a little weary from our months-long study on the book of Deuteronomy, but... We've taken much longer to go through this book than it would have taken Moses. If he literally just preached the words that we have here, we're talking about maybe five or six hours tops. Most conferences last longer than that. So nobody could claim that they didn't know what God demanded of them. Look at verse 12. Moses says, look, it's not up in heaven. You don't need to send someone up there to get it and bring it down for you. In other words, you don't need a, a special mediator to go ask the gods, oh, what, uh, what do you desire from us to do? And it's possible that he's recalling the moment when the people arrived at Mount Sinai and Moses did alone go up onto the mountain to meet with God face to face. And he was gone for 40 days. And it was during the time that people were like, we have no idea where Moses has gone. He's disappeared. We should probably make a golden calf. But Moses says, look, you have the law now. You were lost. You were confused. You didn't know your right hand from your left hand, but not any longer. I came down from the mountain with the law. I passed it on to you. I've, 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 I've explained it to you. I've taught it to you. I've preached it to you. I've tried to live it out in front of you. Now you need to do it. Then in verse 13, he, he, he gives another image to, to emphasize the same point. He says, look, this commandment, this law, is not beyond the sea such that you need to send someone to go get it. Sort of envisioning like an epic quest here, right? Uh, people voyaging across the great wide open sea to go to some foreign land to retrieve a map, a key, a treasure, a princess. I, I don't know, whatever it is to seek out some secret hidden knowledge or understanding, to discover the, or to rediscover the ancient paths that will bring understanding or allow our hero to fight off the bad guys. But Moses says, you don't need any of that. 
God has already provided you with everything that you need. All the secret, hidden, special knowledge you could ever want. The quest is over. No boats need to be procured. No magic weapons need to be forged. No dragons need to be vanquished. Moses says the treasure that you seek is right here. Like I'm giving it to you right now. It's, it, it's here. You know, I was trying to figure out uh, dinner the other week, and so I went online, I, I Googled, like, what should I eat for dinner tonight? Have any of you done this before? <laughs> it's a bad idea, because it's just like this endless stream. It's like top 50 recipes to wow your family tonight, or, or 30 of the top chicken recipes to make in 30 minutes or less, or 47 meals that your kids are guaranteed to love. So I gave up, and we had like spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> I know that. But there are services now that, that, that will do all this work for you, right? They, they prepare all the ingredients. They give you a recipe. They package it all up in a box. They mail it to your house. All you have to do is open the box and cook it. Like, that's all you have to do. No thinking required. Just follow the instructions. And in a way, that's what Moses is saying here. You don't need to spend hours and hours and hours searching for answers to the big questions in life. Who am I? Where am I going? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? What does God want from me? It's, it's all right here. Moses is saying, I, I, I packaged it all up for you. Everything you need to know to love and to serve the Lord. And the question is, and would the people see and recognize it? And of course, the answer is that for so many of them, the answer was no. They did not. Their eyes glazed over, their hearts went hard, and the shiny gods of Canaan became far more alluring, more engaging, more captivating for them. And what of us today? If the people of Israel were blessed and privileged to have access to the law, how much more blessed and privileged are we to have access to the fullness of God's revelation embodied in Jesus Christ himself and written down in all 66 books of the Bible? God's word is knowable. It's accessible. And as Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that are revealed, it's been revealed to us. They belong to us. And to our children forever now. What a gift this is. Not just that God has spoken, but that we know what he has said. Do you see God's word in that light? Or do you find your heart still yearning for something more interesting, more exciting, more special, more unique? Ignoring the gift of God's word would be like, like leaving that pre-prepared box dinner I was telling you about, leaving that out on the front porch while you're back inside scrolling for hours through Google, looking for something better. So kids, listen up. I've got an idea here. So uh, there's about 60 days until the uh, church camping trip. Can I suggest that you engage in a Bible reading plan. This summer, school's out. you got nothing else to do. Um, a, a, a summer reading plan between now and the church camping trip. It's a clearly defined ending point just to read through the Gospel of John. Adults, you can do this too if you want to print it out. Uh, a suggested Bible reading plan with dates and a little spot you can mark it off. And they're over on the resource table over there. Pick one up. Five days a week, you can take the weekends off. There's some extra days built in if you miss some days. But commit this summer 
to knowing God's word. He's given it to us. He's made it accessible. Take and read. Our second point today follows along from the first, and that's not just uh, to know God's law, but to study God's law. Look again at the text. Moses says to them in verse 11, this commandment is not too hard for you. Now, in Hebrew, this word could also mean like marvelous or, or wonderful or extraordinary. In other words, the commandment he is saying is not unintelligible. God's law is not just knowable, but it is also understandable. Now, this is a, a picture of a page from an ancient manuscript called the Voynich Manuscript. I just learned about this this week. It's 600 years old. Experts think it may have been made in Italy, but they really don't know for sure. And this book is astounding. It's 240 pages long, filled with bizarre drawings and written in a language that nobody knows. In 600 years, nobody's been able to decipher this. They've thrown all their best computer-aided statistical tools and deciphering methods and everything. They have no idea. They, they, they've determined for sure, linguists, this is a legitimate language. It's not just random scribblings. But what it says, no idea. We, can, we know it exists. We can look at it, but we don't understand it. But not so for the Bible. A fundamental principle of our faith is that God's word to us is understandable. We can make sense of it without any special degrees or deciphering required. Now, before you rush to some complicated passage in Scripture to to, to, to prove me wrong, consider for a moment who Moses is talking to. None of them had any formal education at all. Any ancient languages that they might have known, they would have picked up simply from from walking and being around those people in other nations. Nobody had an advanced degree or a doctorate or an MDiv or anything. Theological textbooks didn't exist. Commentaries didn't exist. Moses' congregation, this, this group of people, they're ordinary, average everyday people. They're not academics. They're not part of some intellectual elite. They're experts at desert wandering. That's their sweet spot. We, like, we got this down. <laughs> really good at this. They're preparing themselves for a life of sheep herding, right, and winemaking, growing olives, threshing grain, And the law, it doesn't ignore this reality and speak over their heads. It actually addresses the ordinary, daily stuff of their lives. I know this makes the law seem strange and unfamiliar to us, but it was the complete opposite for them. Right? Food laws, tithing, sabbatical years, slavery, feasts, legal decisions, property boundaries, laws about witnesses and warfare, murder and marriage, inheritance rights, clothes, sexual immorality, loans, leprous diseases, disputes, disagreements, everything in between. The law encapsulated every part of their daily life as ordinary people. Right? It was meant to be a straightforward guide to help people love God and love their neighbor. That's it. 
And honestly, once we work through all the cultural differences, the law is not that complicated. Now, we may not agree with it. We, we may find our hearts bristling against it. But it's not like we're studying sort of high-level college calculus or algebra or something. In fact, the Bible is far easier to read than many ancient uh, philosophy books. You know, when we bought a house, we, uh, we were required to hire a lawyer to help us through the process with all the paperwork. And on the day that we closed, there's this huge stack of paperwork. If you ever bought a house, you know this, right? You're in that meeting, you're with the lawyers, and, there's, and they're just panning you page after page after page. And it's like, okay, I get the general gist of what all this means, but the lawyer's there to help explain to me all the details because it's just overwhelming. Sometimes the law is presented as a document of similar complexity, right? something dense and impenetrable, something confusing and bewildering that you need a lawyer to help you understand. But if that's the case, it's hard to see how how the psalmist could speak of the law as reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart, or enlightening the, uh, the eyes. Right? Mortgage documents don't do that. If the law is so complex that only experts can get it, then it's hard to understand how you could end up with Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, being focused entirely on the joy and the delight and the strength and the nourishment that comes from God's laws, commands, decrees. But as Moses says, it's not too strange and esoteric for you to understand. It's accessible. It's understandable. You can make sense of it. And perhaps our own lack of interest, lack of joy, lack of delight in God's word is more a reflection of the state of our own hearts than it is a reflection on the beauty and the comprehensibility of God's word. Now, of course, everyone recognizes there are some parts of Scripture that are easier to understand than others. But the key is that the core doctrines that are necessary to be known and applied are clearly explained and in such a way that everyone, anyone, can understand them. Going back to Deuteronomy for a moment, remember Moses was preaching to everyone, the community at the same time, all ages, from kids all the way up to adults. Think about Deuteronomy 6, right? Parents are called to impress this on their children, which implies they can understand it. The most significant challenge to understanding that is not on God's side of things, as if we need him to be clearer, like God, can you can you like tidy this up for us a little bit? The challenge comes from us, from our hearts. Our sin is the fog that makes the words seem inaccessible, confusing, or bewildering. It's like last week I was doing a Zoom call with some pastors in India, and uh, although I was speaking clearly, and my internet connection was strong, at their end they lost power. And their backup generator was interfering with the internet signal. And as a result, the words that I was communicating were only coming across in bits and pieces. And the video would freeze. God has always spoken clearly and perfectly to us. 
But sin degrades our ability to understand. As Paul says, the natural person does not understand or accept the things of God. But those of us who have the gift of the Holy Spirit living within us have their hearts and their minds open. So now we can see and hear and understand clearly. So kids, I told you a few moments ago, right? Summer reading plan. It's great, but the goal is not just simply read, check, read, check, read, check. Anyone can do that. The goal is understanding, right? There are lots of different ways you can go about doing this, slowing down in the text. But I want to share with you one that I learned just this year from my daughter's teacher, Mr. Johnson. And he came up with a system called OQCA, which I just think is great. So he said, Anytime you get to the text, so kids, as you're going through your plan this summer, I want you to do this. Anyone can do this. Four steps. Uh, oh, observation. What, what, what do you see here? Who's the author? Who are they writing to? Who's the audience? When are they writing? What do you notice about the text? Are there any repeated words, any themes that jump out? What kind of style is it written in? Is it a, is it a letter? Is it history? Is it a genealogy? Then Q, questions. Put a question mark by anything that you don't understand or looks curious or interesting or strange or different to you. Don't just skim the text, but pause Take time to really understand what's happening. Who are these people? What cultural or historical references need to be looked up? And C, for connections. This is the coolest part. How does this passage connect with whatever else you know about the storyline of Scripture? How does this passage connect to or point to Jesus? Are there any other big themes present here that you know or are familiar with or have heard before? Like the people are just about to cross the River Jordan and you're like, wait, they're crossing a body of water. This reminds me of when the people crossed the Red Sea. And then finally, uh, A is for application. And what do you think? What is the main point of the passage for the original audience? So if Paul's writing a letter to someone, what was the main point that he wanted them to understand? And then, and then think, what is the main application for all of God's people today? And then finally, what's something that I personally need to do or believe or think differently as a result of this text? Don't just skim it. Don't just check it off on a list. But take time to dig in and understand God's Word. Well, our third and final point is kind of the necessary conclusion that flows from all the others, and that's to, to do God's law. Parents, how many times have you struggled to get your kids to do their chores? Right? You don't have to put up your hands, but um, right, your kids may know what they're supposed to be doing. They may understand fully what it is that you've asked them to do. Maybe you even took time to write it down for them on a piece of paper and review it so they completely know and understand. But none of that matters if they never take that final step and actually do it, right? And Moses has something similar in mind here at the end of chapter 30. So look with me again at the text, starting in verse 
15. Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession. But... If your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to punishment. We've covered this ground before. But as good Reformed Protestants, We need to nuance this a little bit because Moses did not mean that perfect obedience to God's commands was possible or attainable. Not perfectly. Nor did Moses mean that obedience to God's commands would lead to the complete remission of sins and eternal life. In the context here in Deuteronomy, Moses is clearly talking about their possession of the land and their ability to remain in the land. The obedience Moses commands is not something that earns God's favor. It's a way of remaining in God's favor. So as John Piper says, the call to obedience, it was really a call for them to display their faith in God. Their faith that he would continue doing what he had already been doing year after year after year. Guiding, leading, protecting, providing, blessing. Now, obviously, nobody lived in sinless perfection. The Bible is crystal clear on that. Their law-keeping couldn't earn them a way out of the hole sin had left them stuck in. Their law-keeping couldn't merit salvation. Their law-keeping couldn't pay the penalty that only Christ could pay. But, nevertheless, Moses urges the people to display their faith in God through obedience to the law. Having already been rescued from slavery, they should now respond with obedience to their gracious Savior. Now the problem, of course, is that the sin in their hearts made it essentially impossible for them to do this. There were bright spots, of course, and many ordinary Israelites, I'm sure, managed to live decent enough lives of varying levels of obedience, keeping Sabbath, uh, uh, observing dietary laws, not committing adultery or murder and so on. But sadly, salvation doesn't come from being good or nice. Obeying some of the law, or even most of the law, doesn't cut it, right? We read in James, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. There's no partial credit. And this is a problem that Paul picks up on in Romans, making the strongest case possible that a righteousness based on works can only lead to death. But there's good news for us, and this is the passage that we uh, read already this morning from Romans 10, where he says, um, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring up Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. 
That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So whereas Moses spoke of the law as being near enough and understandable enough to be doable, here Paul transfers that meaning to Christ. So Paul says, nobody needs to go up to heaven to bring Christ down. In the incarnation, the word took on flesh and dwelled among us. Nobody needs to go down into the abyss to try and bring up Christ again from the dead because God already raised Jesus back to life in the resurrection. It's all a work of God. And because Christ has perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of the law, there's no work left for us to do either. All we do is respond to his gracious offer with a confession of faith which was always God's intention from the beginning, that his people would respond to his gracious work in their lives with a profession of faith demonstrated by obedience. And it's in this manner that we are now responsible for doing anything for God, not to earn new life, but as a response to his gracious gift of life to us. So again, going back to your Bible reading, when it comes to application, the goal is not appeasing God or, or earning God's favor or making up for the bad things that you've been doing. As Paul says in Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Our place in the promised land of God's rest is secured by Jesus Christ's perfect act of obedience, not yours or mine. But that gift is now what frees me up to serve freely and openly without fear of judgment or condemnation. And if anything, the demands are now even higher. You and I have been freed from slavery to sin so that we might serve Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, dedicating everything we have, everything we are, to glorifying God. So do what God commands without reservation, without holding anything back, but do so as an act of worship and adoration in response to the work that he has already accomplished on your behalf. I said at the beginning that this text is, is in many ways an encouragement for ordinary people to live out an ordinary faith in an ordinary world. So how does knowing, studying, and doing God's Word achieve that goal? We'll look at verses 19 and 20. Moses says, Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Look, the goal of, of, of your Bible study is not to become an expert at Bible study. right? The goal is drawing near to and worshiping God. The goal is experiencing the life that he offers. The goal is being reminded of the gospel and the salvation that he secured on our behalf. The goal is spiritual nourishment and renewed strength. The goal is, is, is discovering wisdom and direction and guidance and hope. This whole book, all the commandments 
and laws. They're intended to be a guide for life, to help us know how to love God and to love our neighbor wherever we live and whatever we do. So listen to his voice. Obey his voice and cling tightly to your Lord so that you too may experience life everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word that brings life. And as we face into the ordinary, everyday messiness of our lives, the ups and downs of our families and our work and school and everything else, Lord, I pray that your word will bring us comfort, encouragement, healing, help, hope, nourishment, strength to love you, Lord, and to love our neighbor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.